And I'm thankful that we can come here and worship the Lord and feel His presence and right in the middle of the week. And no matter what you're going through, you can walk in this place and uh, just feel that wonderful worship that we had tonight. And just join hearts and voices and spirits with those that are around us. And I don't, I don't want to take that for granted, but I, I cherish these moments that we have together. And they mean so much to us. Amen. Amen. It's good to see you tonight. I appreciate your faithfulness. Amen. You may be seated. Is that Sister Priscilla Reed back there? Sister, I'm going to embarrass you. I want you to come up here for a second. She's going to really hate me for this. Come on. I, you don't have to come up here. You can come down to the front here. Uh, Sister Reed is the uh, founder of our preschool, Little Life, and she decided to retire. And uh, how many years has it been? A long time. Anyway, she started our Little Life uh, preschool, and uh, because of her, there's a preschool. And she's taken a lot of personal sacrifices, and she's given a lot of her time freely. And uh, COVID was a real challenge for preschools. And so uh, she survived all of that. And uh, she's retiring. So I just wanted to publicly say thank you and a small gift from our church and let you know that we appreciate you and all your labors. And uh, we wish you the very best. God bless you. Amen. Air hug. Yes. Amen. Amen. Little Life's been a big blessing to our church uh, in so many different ways. And I appreciate her commitment and sacrifice and uh, we're looking for wonderful, wonderful things ahead. Amen. Pentecost Sunday. What a great day we had in this place this past Sunday. To feel the victory of Jesus Christ. And uh, we baptized three people. I know, personally know of three people that were filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And I think there were a few more. I haven't been able to confirm that yet. And many, many uh, of you renewed, strengthened in the Lord and uh, let that momentum build. Let that just carry on, and uh, uh, there's no reason for that to stop. But let's press forward, and uh, we are climbing out of this pandemic, and I, I am trying very much to hear the voice of God with you, and I believe God has great things for us. And this summer, I want us to, to continue to make progress as individuals, as families, as a church, and uh, getting out of this thing, getting our minds back in gear, and uh, hit the fall just 100%, just going forward by faith in Jesus' name, and to uh, see what the Lord will do. Of course, uh, things will be different going forward uh, with a, more than a year, almost a year and a half disruption uh, of the way that we've done things for so long. Uh, there's no choice but for things to be different. And so we will begin, as I've said from the beginning, uh, we will begin adding things that add value to our ministry model, and uh, hopefully begin to stack win upon win and open up things that are helpful and good. And uh, you're seeing that uh, gradually. We're opening up more and more things. And so stay tuned. More is coming. And uh, we want to make sure that we uh, uh, move forward, keep our faith strong, and keep our eyes on Jesus. Amen. Um, one more Sunday with, with uh, our church mask requirement. The, Sunday, June the 6th, it's going to be up to you. Now, what we're going to do, we'll send out a note in explaining this, but on beginning June the 6th, we'll have some sections of the church uh, that are exactly like you are tonight. They'll be spaced out, and to sit in those sections, you have to wear a mask. But there will also be plenty of seating where you don't have to wear a mask. But if you wear a mask, you can sit wherever you want to sit. Uh, this way, we can respect the desires of everyone. If you want to wear a mask, we want you to come and feel safe. Uh, if you're vaccinated or otherwise immune to whatever's comes, then you're, it's up to you. So we want to leave that up to you. I feel like we've had enough time for people to make their choices, and uh, people can be responsible. And we also can create an atmosphere that is safe and uh, make sure everyone feels like they have an option and a choice. And the last thing that I want to do is single people out. I don't want to do that. I want people to be comfortable, but I also want us to have a, a, a spirit of brotherly kindness. And if someone has a different take, a different perspective, a different view, that's okay. They're still our brother. They're still our sister. And uh, if someone wants to wear a mask until Jesus comes, um, you know, it's probably a good idea. There's a lot of other stuff out there that would probably hurt you as bad as COVID will. Um, go for it. Uh, if someone doesn't want to wear a mask, well, it's, it's their body. So 
Um, we'll leave that to them. And in the church, we're the church. And so we, I want us to respect those choices and respect those decisions and be able to worship together as a loving community. And I appreciate your tolerance, your patience, uh, your endurance for as long as you have endured. I appreciate that. Again, our church is very diverse. We have a lot of different opinions about this. And I appreciate your willingness to go along and to help us create a place where the majority can feel safe, no matter what our individual views might be. And so I want to say how much I appreciate that, and I appreciate you. I'm just curious. Um, we'll, we'll make some sort of guess uh, as to how many seats, you know, to, re, to designate as mask only and, and ones that are just, you know, up to the people that are sitting in them. I'm just curious, if this were June the 6th, how many of you would not, not wear a mask in here? Okay, how many would? Okay, that gives us a good feel. I don't know if that represents the Sunday crowd or not, but it gives us a good feel. We'll see how it goes that Sunday. If we need to adjust uh, our ratios, we will. But again, thank you in advance for your patience. Thank you for your cooperation and for um, hanging in there with us. Amen. Sunday was a great example that, you know, even if you're not in the ideal environment, God can still move. And he can still pour out his spirit, and uh, it'll all be good in the end. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> well, this is our last lesson in our, in our Christian walk series, uh, and I've enjoyed it. I thought about bringing you a lot more beautiful pictures tonight, but then I thought I probably shouldn't do that. So I'm not going to show you beautiful pictures tonight. But um, I uh, want to finish up tonight on one last thing that I want to share with you in this regard, the Christian walk. And we've talked about several important parts of the Christian walk. The first is preparedness, being prepared. And, uh, you know, you can never be too prepared, uh, particularly in life. And we talked about several things that had to do with our Christian preparedness, being prepared for what lies ahead. And, of course, you're here on Wednesday night, so you are making preparations. And then we talked about trail markers, things that indicate that you are on the right path, that you're on the right trail. And what to do if you get off the trail. And so, again, you're here on Wednesday night, so this is one of those good trail markers in your life. If you're at church on Wednesday night, you're on the right path. So keep walking and keep going. Last week, we talked about trail partners. There's some people that you need on the trail with you, and there's some people you don't need on the trail with you. And uh, you need to get that figured out. I want to talk tonight about something a little bit different. You know... Um, and I don't want to bore you to death with my personal life, but, you know, we, uh, my wife and I enjoy hiking quite a bit. And one of the things that I do is I have this list of places I want to go hike. Um, I have a, we're, we're uh, after we uh, marry off our beloved daughter, we're going to take vacation and uh, we're going hiking. And uh, this weekend, we've got to be out of town at a wedding somewhere. Well, I'm looking for trails. Um, because I've got this list of places I want to go. And on vacation, I was just looking at... Um, this coming month in vacation, there's this trail that I'm looking at. I don't know if my wife knows this or not, but there's this trail that someone referred me to in where we're going on vacation. Um, it's rated hard. It's 13 miles out and back, and it has an uh, elevation change of 5,500 feet. Um, that's on my list, so uh, we're going. Um, I've got a worse one than that. Uh, plan for next year, but always looking for some new adventure, some new trail to go down, uh, because there's beauty I haven't seen. There's things that I haven't experienced, and I want to. Um, and so tonight, I want to talk to you about sort of the similar thing in your spiritual walk, and that is setting some goals, having some spiritual goals that you set in your life, having tasted the good things of God already, having felt the presence of God in here on Sunday. Seeing what God does in the lives of people who surrender to him on Sunday. Knowing all of these things about our testimony and how God has brought us this far, that should motivate us then to see what else God may have in store for us. Now, I want to share several points on that tonight, but I want to underscore the reality that the Christian life is not about getting the stamp or the ticket to get into heaven. Sometimes we look at salvation or conversion like that. You know, well, I was saved back in 1922, and well, that's great. 
But what did you do since 1922? How has God used you since then? How have you grown since then? What, have, what, what steps have you taken since then? And sometimes we look at the Christian life as, well, I got the, I got the card to get into heaven. I got my name written, so I'm going to get to heaven. And then, then life is just life. Whatever happens between here is just life. But it's not just life. There is a Christian walk that we walk between the beginning at our conversion and our going to heaven, whether that's through our own death or the coming of the Lord. There is this progress, there's this process that should be unfolding in our lives. And the tendency is, the tendency is, is to sort of get to a point where you relax. Particularly if God's used you in the past. Particularly if you've, if you've spent many years working in the church. You can easily get to that point where you have the attitude, well, I've done my part. Well, that's no way to finish the race. And so I want to challenge you tonight to run the race until you cross the finish line. I mean, those of you that are familiar with sports, I mean, if you're on a track team, I don't care if you're second place, third place, fourth place, if you stop running full speed before you cross that finish line, you're going to have a conversation with the coach in a few minutes. Because no matter how far someone else is ahead of you, it's your job to push as hard as you can, as fast as you can, and get across that line as quickly as you can. Same is true in baseball. You know, they talk about running through first base. It doesn't matter if you think you're going to get thrown out or not. You run as fast as you can until your foot touches that bag. Why? It's a matter of hustle. It's a matter of effort. It's a matter of intention. It's a matter of getting mindset and attitude set. And the same is true with our walk for God. There's never a day or a week where we get to go on cruise control. And this is why many times I'll post something on social media on a Saturday night that just says, hey, tomorrow's Sunday or pray for Sunday. In other words, we all should have that sense of responsibility that God is going to do something in our church. That God's going to do something in this place, and I, as a member of this church, I'm connected to that in some way. In other words, I'm not just on autopilot. I'm not just kind of coasting through here, but I want to be a part of whatever God's doing. And to have that sense of spiritual hustle where I'm going to run until the race is over, and I'm not going to slow down. Now, I'm going to read a bunch of scriptures tonight, so some of you that have your Bibles may want to follow along. And they may have it on the screen as well. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read some very, very well-known passages of Scripture tonight. Our Christian walk is a progression. The beautiful thing about living for God is that your spiritual maturity when you were converted is not the end. How many of you remember when you were filled with the Holy Ghost? Yeah, you can't forget that, right? It's totally transforming. Okay, at that moment, it was probably a little difficult to imagine that there was more. Right? Because you were so full of joy. You were so full of peace and you felt the a sense of the presence of God like you'd never felt before. But the reality is that's just a doorway. It's a threshold moment. It's a threshold experience where that's not the end of your spiritual life. That's the doorway where you just happen to step into the house. And sometimes we tend to think of our, our Christian walk as, well, I'm saved in terms of I'm saved or I'm not saved. But that's not the end of the Christian experience. It's not just a matter of being saved or not saved. It's a matter of allowing Christ to be formed in us. It's a matter of allowing God to bring to fruition everything that he has intended for your life. And so the Christian life is not this, 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 this very binary thing of just on or off, saved or lost. It, it supersedes that. There are, there are progressions that we experience in God. There are, there are, there are ways that we grow. There's things that, that we shed. There's things we get rid of. And there's things that we take on as we grow in God. Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Again, very familiar passage of Scripture. I beseech you, implore you, beg you, plead with you. I beseech you, therefore, brethren... 
by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, Paul at this time, at the writing of Romans, he, to his letter to the Romans, he had not been to Rome. He did not plant the church in Rome, but he's connecting with them. It's a great church. He wants to go there someday, but he's just writing with them, in essence, presenting his theology. And so the book of Romans is the closest thing to a, 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 an actual theology that we have from Paul. All of his other letters are dealing with issues, addressing things. They're very uh, circumstantial. They're very uh, occasional uh, is the word that's used a lot. He's, a, he's speaking to a particular occasion. In Romans, it's more theoretical. He's just presenting theology without necessarily responding to certain issues. And in this letter to the Romans, the church he didn't start, he includes this urging of them to keep on living the Christian life by presenting their bodies a living sacrifice. And the, the end of that is so that you may be able to know and to prove what is, what is the will of God in your lives. In other words, as we put effort into our spiritual life, there's more that God unfolds for us. It's not just a matter of being saved and lost. The fringe crowd that comes on Sunday, the larger group that's not connected, those that just enjoy the worship and go away, a lot of those are saved. But there's more to it than just being saved. And that's why people like you are here on a Wednesday night. Because you know that there is this unveiling of the will of God in your lives. There's this, there's this progression. I don't want to make more of it than perhaps what it is here. But as Paul says in Romans 12 too, have your mind renewed that you can prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, I don't know if he's trying to present a three-tiered approach to the will of God. There's his good will and his acceptable will and his perfect will. I don't think that's the point, if you know the way Paul uses vocabulary and adjectives. But the point is that there is a will of God for your life that is good. There's a will of God for your life that is perfect. There is a will of God for your life that is acceptable to him. And we are to live our lives in the kind of way that we can know that. That we can know that. Because the Christian life is a process. What was the will of God for my life 10 years ago may be a little different than what the will of God for my life is today. Now this has nothing to do with foundational theological beliefs or godliness or sin. But there's ways that God wants to work in me. There's things that God wants me to do. There are tasks and assignments. There's, there's spiritual areas that God wants to operate in my life in. And I need to be able to know what the will of God is. And Paul says the way we do that is by living this consecrated life, by living this life where our bodies are presented as a living sacrifice to him. Living sacrifice. Another very well-known passage of Scripture, and that's Hebrews chapter 12. You're familiar with both of these. In fact, I've mentioned this one already in this uh, series already. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 1, following up on Hebrews 11, where there's that great cloud of witnesses that's mentioned. Therefore, we also, seeing we are surrounded by so great, great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, again, what you get in this passage is a picture of process. Lay aside weights, lay aside sins, and run. Run. But what are you doing with your, when you're running? Well, you're basically doing two things. One, you're making progress. Two, you're trying to achieve a goal. And that's the metaphor, and Paul uses it many times in the New Testament, that he uses for the Christian life, and, and whoever this writer of Hebrews is uses it here, that the Christian life is a, is a, a process. In other words, if you're running, 
you're not in the same place right now that you were when you started out. If you're running, you're not in the same place you were five minutes ago, five seconds ago. In other words, there's this linear progress, there's this movement, there's this motion. You are literally in a different place today than you were yesterday. And, And the writer says, run this race. And he said, looking unto Jesus, who is author and finisher. Again, you see this process. And Paul says elsewhere that, that he's, what, what we commit to him, he's able to complete. And what he begun in us, he's able to finish. The same sort of concept here. Jesus is the author of our salvation and he is the finisher of our salvation. Now, if it's just a matter of being saved or lost, on or off, this doesn't make any sense. All you have to say is that Jesus is the author of my faith. But there's more to it than just what he started. He is the author and he is the finisher of my faith. That tells me there's a starting point for my faith and there is an ending point for my faith. And what's between the starting point and the ending point is me running. In other words, the progress is up to me. Now, you'll notice if you read through the New Testament, how many imperatives, commands are given. And how this responsibility of spiritual growth is not just a prayer request. The responsibility of spiritual growth is just not up to God. He's done his part. But the responsibility of spiritual growth is placed on us. He's the author and he's the finisher, but what's in between is a race and you have to run it. And so we find these stories and metaphors and examples and these admonitions throughout the New Testament that the Christian life is process, it's progress. 2 Peter chapter 1, that's over more towards the back of your Bibles. I don't hear many pages turning. You can tap it in if you have that app. It works just the same. To Peter. To space Peter. Uno. Enter. Second Peter 1, verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. If you just stop and notice these words that kind of get in here, giving all diligence. That's not, I'll go to church if I feel like it. That's not, I'll go if things work out. That's not, I'll pray if I don't forget. That's not, I'll read scripture unless I want to scroll social media. No, giving all diligence. You, it's an implied subject here, you, it's a command. You, add to your faith virtue. And you add to virtue knowledge. And you add to knowledge self-control. And you add to self-control perseverance. And you add to perseverance godliness. And to godliness brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? It's process. He's talking about this Christian life as something that grows in us. And he's saying there's, and and again, I don't think this is talking about spiritual dimensions. He's just talking about this well-rounded spiritual life. He's saying there's always more. There's always something else to go to. There's always a stretching. And, And this is what the Christian life is like. Ephesians chapter 3. I told you I'm going to read a lot of scripture tonight. Ephesians chapter 3. And beginning with verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, listen to this, 
may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What lofty language. And Paul is clearly telling them, you don't know this. You haven't experienced this. He says, I'm praying for you that this would happen to you. Paul's saying, I'm praying for you. I'm bowing my knees before God for you that this would happen to you. What Paul is telling them is that there's more in God for you. That there's, a, there's places in God you haven't experienced yet. Now this is, the, the, this is the first century church. These are the offspring and disciples, the personal disciples of the apostles. And Paul's telling these beloved saints, there's things in God you don't know. And I'm, I'm striving with you in prayer because I want you to know them. And he says, I'm praying for you that you would be rooted and grounded in love and that you would have hearts full of faith. Why? So that you could understand, you could comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ. What he's saying is there's places that we have not explored in God yet. There's things about God we don't know yet. There are places in the love of God, the depths of the love of God that we haven't encountered before. And what Paul is presenting to the, to, 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 to the church at Ephesus, he's presenting them with this challenge to press forward and to know of God, to lean into God. This is not just a doing thing. This is not just a holiness code. This is not just doing good works or not doing bad things. He's talking to them about relationship with God. And he's telling them, lean into your relationship with God. Yes, you know him. Yes, you're saved. But push on in God. There's more for you in God. Challenging them. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And this is sort of Paul's own testimony of what he just wrote to the Ephesians. He just admonished them to do this. And now you hear Paul's impassioned explanation of his own pursuit of God. Philippians 3, beginning with verse 7. But what things were gained to me? He's talking about his, his professional career before his conversion. But what things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you get that? All of his earthly ambitions, all of his education, his status. Paul says, I count all of it, all of it. He says, I'm willing to put it all aside. It's loss. Why? For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. When you read language like this, you, 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 you're reading the passion of someone who, who literally has Jesus Christ as number one. In other words, there's not this competition in the mind. There, there's not this clutter of priorities. There, there's not this, this sort of, you know, just mixture of devotions in his life. He says, I count it all loss. Why? For the excellence, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, to know him. I give it all up. And then he goes on and says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Now, don't, we, we just kind of gloss over that. Paul said, there's this intimacy with God that I am after. There is this place in God that I'm seeking for. 
And Paul had literally given up everything and he's turned away from it. And he said, I've done all this that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection. Verse 12, not that I've already attained this. He kind of backs. He kind of backtracks a bit and says, just so you're wondering, I'm not there yet. Or am already perfected, but I press on. I lean into it. Now, here's Paul. He just told you what he gave up. If you read up the verses before that, he kind of itemizes it. He also does that in 1 Corinthians. He gives up a lot, a whole lot. Literally, literally endures persecution. We have some news person or politician say something about Christians and we think we're persecuted. Paul to the Galatians says, I bear in my body the stigmata, the literal marks. He says, I bear in my body the literal marks of Jesus Christ. He actually had scars from persecution. And we cower when a politician or a school superintendent says something against Christians. Paul is this man that's given up everything. Paul has been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, he's not had food. He's been through all these things, rejected by his own friends and, and his own brethren. He's gone through all of this stuff and he says, I've done all of this that I may know him. Now, clearly Paul, a man, a man full of the passion of God, a man greatly used by God, a man who's writing scripture that we're being blessed by today, a man used in the gifts of the Spirit, establishing churches, casting out devils, this sort of man. And he still has this self-awareness. I have not attained it yet, but I'm pressing. I'm pressing. And the challenge for all of us is to keep on pressing. To keep on pushing to keep on seeking after God to keep on letting God be God to keep on putting things out that clutter to keep on reaching for that 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 prize he talks about it here he said I've I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me Brethren, I don't count myself to have laid hold of it, but one thing I do, I forget those things that are behind me and I reach forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. I press, I press, I press. Have you ever felt like your living for God was pressing? Like it was, there was resistance? Paul's not strolling into victory. Paul's not strolling into relationship with God. He's pressing into it. Because there are many things that don't want you to go there. There are many things that don't want you to have a relationship with God. The natural ebbs and flows of life will prevent you. The just of general principle of entropy and how everything tends towards disorder and things that are in motion tend to stop. All of the, it will stop you from moving forward. The best of intentions will be thwarted. The best of things that you plan to do for God will have some sort of disruption to them. It's just life. And then if you pile on that, the spiritual resistance that comes against you, you will not be spiritually victorious by accident. I'll go farther. You won't be spiritually victorious by attending church here. But you will be spiritually victorious if you press. You've got to push for it. You've got to lean into it. You've got to have some spiritual goals and spiritual destinations that you are willing to sacrifice for. I, I press on. And I count everything else loss. I count everything else loss. Verse 15, therefore let us, as many as are mature... As many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. In other words, what, don't give up the territory you've gained. If you're walking, keep walking. If there's still a future, keep reaching for it. If there's still something in God, keep grasping for it. 
you know, there's, there's, this, there's this principle in, in Scripture. There's this principle in Scripture that we are the managers of our spiritual gifts. And that we are the managers of our spiritual life. What did Jesus say? Remember the, the parable of the talents? Where there, there's one uh, in the story, there's, there's one servant that gets five talents, there's one that gets two, and there's one that gets one. The one that gets five invests it, gets a return for his Lord, and he's praised for that. The one that has two, he invests it, gets a return for his Lord, and he's praised for that. The one who has one is afraid that he will lose it or something will happen to it, and so he just hides it. And when the Lord returns, um, in the parable of the Lord, he, he gives the one little talent back to his Lord, and his Lord condemns him. And he says, you should have done something with this. And Jesus is the one telling this parable. And he takes, in the, in the parable, the Lord takes that away from that man, the one thing he had that he hung on to. He takes it away from him, and he gives it to the guy that has five. Now, how does that work with political correctness today? Everybody doesn't get a trophy in the parables. In, in, in the parable, those that have will receive more, and those that don't have will have taken away from them. And Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is required. You see these kinds of statements throughout the Gospels. What is it? It's spiritual stewardship. Sometimes we wait for God to pour out things on us. Sometimes we wait for God to endue us or empower us. That's not what happens in Scripture to a believer. What happens to a believer is they walk by faith with what they already have. And when they use what they already have, God then entrusts them with something more. Sometimes we're waiting on some supernatural whatever to help us walk through some door we've never been through when we neglect the use of what God's already given us. The principle in Scripture is, if you use what God's given you, don't worry about the next phase. God will take care of that. But be faithful in what you do have. Be faithful with the revelation you do have. Be faithful with the prayer life you do have. Be faithful in what you have, and God then will bless you and open up other doors for you. We are the managers of our spiritual gifts. If we don't use them, we lose them. If we don't use them, they become dormant, and it's not God's fault. But as we exercise them, and as we step out by faith, what we find out is that God is more interested in us using our gifts than we are, and he'll open doors for us, and he will bless us, and we will find gifting we didn't know we had when we use what we already have. Paul writes two letters to Timothy. Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy is Paul's son in the gospel. Timothy and Paul have this interesting relationship. And um, Timothy's mentioned more than, than anyone else in Paul's other letters. He's constantly referring to Timothy. He says he has no one like Timothy. And when you get to 2 Timothy, many believe that the, the second epistle to Timothy may be, have been Paul's last epistle when he was in prison, either about to be killed or thinking he might be killed. Of course, we don't know exactly, but that, that's kind of the context. And so 2 Timothy is this very emotional letter. In fact, you should read it in a, a modern translation sometime. It's extremely emotional. Paul's making these requests to Timothy. He's saying, remember this person, how they did me wrong. Remember this, remember that. Mark this person, do this, do that. He's given his last set of instructions to Timothy before he's perhaps about to die. He also talks about how no one was with me when I stood at my trial. Everyone forsook me. No one was here. I was all by myself. You get this kind of real personal sort of thing in 2 Timothy. Paul requests some things from Timothy. He says, hurry up and come before winter and bring my cloak. Evidently, he's going to be cold. He says, bring my books, bring the parchments. It's just this very intimate, personal letter. Well, in this letter, you can see this sort of transfer that Paul's giving to Timothy. Timothy is urged in that epistle uh, to, to, to not be timid. He's urged to preach the gospel. He's urged to stand up and be a good soldier. He's urged to fight because Paul's not going to be there for him anymore. And so Paul is trying to prop him up and get him going. And notice what Paul says at the very beginning of the, of the epistle. Chapter 1, verse 6. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now that's interesting on, on two accounts. First of all, 
In the first letter to Timothy, he says, remember the gifts you received in the anointing. Remember your ordination when the elders laid hands on you. Kind of general. We were all there gathered around you. But then when you get to 2 Timothy, it's a whole lot more personal. And he says, hey, don't forget, boy. I laid my hand on you and you got something. And here Paul's telling him, stir it up. Paul is telling him there's more in you than has come out. There's more in you than you have experienced. In other words, when you received that ordination and when we laid hands on you, something was planted in you. And you haven't seen the end of it. I think every Christian should take that as a promise. That there's more in you and you haven't seen the end of it. What God has sowed inside of you is not through bearing fruit yet. The gift that's inside you has not finished producing yet. But Timothy, it's up to you. You can just go to the grave with this gift and the amount of victory that you've experienced or you can stir the gift up. You can make the gift work. Now, he doesn't say right here exactly what he means by that. You kind of have to take the whole of, the other, of this whole epistle and the, and the other one to figure out what he's talking about. But what he's telling Timothy is, Timothy, have faith in God. Timothy, exercise the gift that you do have. Timothy, preach the gospel. Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. He's telling him these things because he's telling him, you have got to stir this up. And if you'll use what you have, God will bless it and God will use it. You need to have some spiritual goals. And to recognize that the gifting that is in you is not done bearing fruit yet. And the gifting that is in you is not done producing yet. There's more in you that God wants to do. Stir it up. A preacher can't stir it up. Sunday school can't stir it up. The youth ministry can't stir it up. The church can't stir it up. But you, Timothy, you stir it up. Find a place of prayer until you weep. Look at this world until you feel the weight of it. Read scripture until you absolutely believe that God is still a God who works miracles. I'm telling you, there's gifting and callings that we have not begun to tap into. But I also know that if we'll stir it up, that God wants to do great things in Austin, Texas, but not just in Austin, in your life and in your family. If you'll stir up the gift that is inside you. Stir it up, Timothy. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, it's in this long exhortation, chapter uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, 14, that whole chapter section there, he's talking about gifts and things. And, and he tells them after he's really admonishing them on how to regulate spiritual gifts, he tells them, but earnestly desire the best gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 and 31. Earnestly. In other words, we're sitting in Sunday morning church I'd be nice if someone would give a message in tongues interpretation. That'd be awesome. I wish sister so-and-so who always does it would do it. Paul says, earnestly, earnestly desire the best gifts. Of course, all the Bible college graduates, particularly the freshmen, sit around in, in the dorm and debate what's the best gift. Well, I'll let you in on a secret. The best gift's whatever gift you need right now. <laughs> the point's not which gift's the best. The point is you've got to earnestly desire it. And if you'll start seeking it and you'll start desiring it, you'll start seeing it. You know, we generally wind up with the things that we really value in life and the things we want. We find a way to get there. Desire the best gifts. 
the best spiritual gifts. I want to challenge us to set spiritual goals tonight. I'm out of time, but I want to, I want to wrap up with a, a, one more point. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles were being pulled from their task of leading the church to wait on these tables. I've told you this before, you know it. Just those of you who know your Bible know how it works. Day of Pentecost and Passover, you have all these Jewish pilgrims that come from all over the world. They're there for festival. They get the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. Well, guess what? A lot of them don't even go back home. They just stay there in Jerusalem. Well, now you've got all these people that don't have houses. They don't have places to live. they got all this. And so that's why you see early in the book of Acts, chapter 5, chapter 6, you see them sh- selling their things. They have all things common. Why? They've got this influx of believers. They don't know what to do with them. They've come from out of town. Now they're here. And they've got to take care of them. All this stuff. Well, the disciples are getting pulled because these, there's this dispute about the Grecian widows think that, the, that the, the people that are handing out the benevolence and the food and all that, they think that they're showing partiality to the Judean women, to their widows. And so you can just imagine all this chaos going on. So the disciples say, we don't have time to deal with all that. Let's look out. They told the church, you church, you look, you look out and find seven men that are full of faith, full of the Holy Ghost, and you put them over the order of taking care of all these tables. So they did that. And so, two of these guys, Stephen and Philip, I'll just skip down chapter 6, get through the, the whole waiting on tables things. Verse 4, this is the apostles, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer in the ministry of the word. Let those guys wait on tables. We'll, we'll take care of the preaching and the praying. Okay, so you kind of got the role of the seven. They're, they're, they're putting up the tables, Okay. Very next verse, and, and the saying pleased the whole multitude, and so they chose Stephen and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, proselyte from Antioch, yada, 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 yada. Okay, they laid their hands on them, prayed for them, and they go wait tables. Okay, that was verse 6, verse 7. Okay, you ready for this? Verse 7. A guy got ordained to wait on tables, okay? Okay, verse 7, though. Then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Whoa, where did he come from? He was waiting on tables. He was doing what God had asked him to do. He was exercising the gift that had been given to him. And in his faithfulness, God anoints him mightily, and he has a revival that the apostles don't even have. Why? Because he used what he had. I'll just fast forward, save you the time. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, therefore those who were scattered, they were scattered. Why? Because Stephen preached so well, it caused persecution Jews got scared. The believers got scared. They ran off. They scattered, okay? Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Why? Because of a man named Stephen. Verse 5. Then Philip. Oh, he's another one of those seven, okay? Where are the apostles? I don't know. But Stephen and Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Why? Because a man that was ordained to wait on tables shared the gospel with somebody. Now, three times in the New Testament, three times the word evangelist is mentioned. Three times. One, in, in, I just mentioned in Paul's writings to Timothy where he says, Timothy, you do the work of an evangelist. The second is in Ephesians chapter 4 when it lists the five-fold ministry, what's often called the five-fold ministry, evangelists, pastors, prophets, teachers, that, it's in that list. There's only one person in Scripture who is actually identified as such an evangelist. Acts chapter 21. On the next day we were 
This is Luke writing. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. The only named evangelist in the Bible. And he started out waiting on tables. What are your spiritual goals? You got to get started. Goals for your Christian walk. Maybe it could start, I know I'm out of time, just real quickly. It could start maybe with an improved prayer life. Doesn't have to be a great burden, but just start with consistency. Maybe you don't pray 30 minutes an hour a day. That's okay. Pray five. Pray two. Consistency. Get the consistency built in. Maybe you are consistent. Pray for intensity. Pray a little longer. Pray until you feel the presence of God. Carve out some time. Maybe it's just once a month where you have nothing else on the agenda. Maybe it's a Friday night or a Saturday night where you can just go and pray and just stay there as long as you want. You can pray. You can meditate. You can think. There's no clock. There's no word. Just carve out the time. Intensity. Maybe in a greater awareness of the word of God. Make the word of God more part of your life. I'm going to have to pick up on this in another lesson. Grow in the areas of your weakness. Make some consecrations that need to be made. Well, I don't want to rush through all this. We'll pick this up in another lesson. But set some spiritual goals. Things you want to do in God. Places you want to go that you haven't been before. And see what God will do. Amen. Let's stand and close in prayer. I again want to thank you for being here tonight. And uh, I feel we are on our way to great things in God. And uh, I know it's a holiday weekend. So many will be traveling this weekend. If that's you, be safe. If it's not, be here in the house of the Lord. And take some time to pray for Sunday. Amen. Great things are going to happen. Could we just lift voices of thanks to the Lord? And maybe you'd like to pray and ask the Lord to direct you and order your steps tonight. God, I pray that you would order our steps tonight. I pray that you would help us all to take some steps of faith. I pray that we could set some spiritual goals. I pray that we would step out and be faithful in the opportunities that we have. Lord, there's many things that we don't have, of course. We know that. We all know that there are things that we are lacking. But Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to be faithful in what we do have. And as we are faithful and as we present ourselves to you, I have confidence that you will use us. I have confidence that you will work in us. And we give you all the praise in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Greet someone before you leave. God bless you. We'll see you this weekend.